Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to travel to Singapore and we're going to talk to Sherry, founder of BlueJay, and we're going to talk about tokenization and financial inclusion, diversity, how to actually get more people to invest, how to invest smartly in a wider universe, diversify and do it also leveraging technology, which we love to talk about here on Voice of Fintech. So how are you today, Sherry? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Fabulous. So... I spent some time in Singapore a while ago. I love it, even though it was quite interesting for me to see that every day there's been 30 degrees <laughs> and every day at 3 p.m. it started rain, rain for half an hour and you could set your watch by it. But how did you get to do what you do today now that you are founder or co-founder of Blue Jay in Singapore? Yeah, absolutely. In a way, I think my journey actually started five years ago when I moved over to Singapore with Google, which was my previous employer, to work on the Google Pay product for India. And it used to be actually a very new product, but in the course of three years from launch until the time I left, it became a over 100 million user product. And it was very exciting because it demonstrated the role that fintech really has in accelerating financial inclusion in emerging markets. Basically, you've got people that were using cash primarily, jumping over the credit card revolution and going straight into digital payments. So it was really exciting to witness the power that technology has there. Now, after the fintech revolution, I started to think about, okay, what's next? What is that next stack? And that's really where I just got into Web3 and DeFi because essentially it's, you know, it's a software layer that allows for more and more people to be able to program financial services such as borrowing and lending and allow for more people to actually get into the ecosystem as well and also create new structures that may have not been possible before under, I guess, under the way it works in, in, in traditional finance. And so that's how I guess I jumped through those different stages of my journey and got to Blue Jay. Now, the question that I'm sure you the audience will ask is what exactly is BlueJay? What is the what's the problem that it's solving? So BlueJay is software that allows for individual investors to discover and invest in sophisticated alternative assets like private credit that's usually reserved for high net worth or institutions. And the blockchain component comes in because the investments are actually made on chain with stable coins and all the disbursements and payments are done automatically via the smart contract, which makes a lot of the manual processing of payments basically a lot more efficient. But the other part that this technology brings in is actually the fractionalized nature of the investments as well, because with most private market investments, the minimum ticket sizes can be quite high and less accessible for folks to be able to invest in. I'll stop right there. That was just a really quick introduction to answer your question around how I got to where I got to and what exactly uh, Blue Jay does. 
So you started to talk about what Blue Jay does, your company now, and you started to outline what the problem is, but let me be a bit skeptical. I know it sounds a little bit too obvious to you because you devoted all this time and energy to building it, but why is it worth solving? Why is this a problem that we should be focusing on? Mentions part of it, which is for some of the asset classes, you need to have a high ticket or high minimum ticket to go into. But of course, the regulators will tell you that's because they are more risky, illiquid. So we want to target it or allow it for people who are qualified investors. And if they lose $100,000, doesn't matter. So that's another argument that also some people in private equity or venture capital say, if you cannot lose 50, 100,000, then don't do it. Don't do 5,000. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, like to answer your question around the ticket size component of it. There are certain jurisdictions where there are some restrictions. Just to mention, I think in the US, every fund is limited to 250 LPs. So there is a regulatory reason, I think, in certain markets where that's that makes it harder. Now, of course, there's always workarounds that people implement to use SPV structures or things like that. But outside of the US, right here in Singapore, whenever there are these restrictions on ticket sizes, it's not always to do with regulations. It's just simply the fund operations make it difficult to serve thousands thousands of small investors. But I actually want to address actually uh, to take a step back, actually, like, why does this even matter? Right? Why do people even want to get access to private credit, private debt, or these alternatives to even solve this access problem? Let me actually tell you a personal story, right about my own personal investment journey. I actually for a long time, mostly had allocation of my own portfolio into ETFs. I was told when I was starting to save and build my personal wealth that investing into index funds will get you that eight to 12% annualized return in a very kind of low due diligence, low risk kind of way, right? You just chuck it in and it should grow. And for a very long time, if you started investing in right after the global financial crisis in 2008, that thesis was maybe largely true, right? And then something called 2022 happened and people's just people just saw their portfolios decimated, right? It depends on what you were investing in, but it could have been down 20%, could have been down more depending on if it was tech weighted or other industries or higher risk weighted. And so what people realized, including myself, is that, wow, everything I have is extremely correlated with each other. There's actually an extreme lack of diversification in my portfolio, which wasn't a problem when things are great. But when things were not great, all of a sudden I saw that happened to me and it happened to millions of other people. I'm not alone in this at all. And I also felt a little bit lost in terms of my options, right? Okay, what can I actually do? It's not government bonds or savings accounts are going to give me interesting enough yields. They still don't beat inflation. And then alternative assets or like private credit, you can't, or I guess fixed income instruments. First of all, most of the time you don't even know about them because maybe the private bankers have access. And if you know, you're not worth 20 million or more, it might be difficult to actually know about them or get access. But even if you know about it, then it goes back to this problem of minimum ticket sizes, where if you're brand new to an asset class, like you might not want to shell out 200K right away. You may want to try out a small amount and increase that allocation over time. That's what most people who talk about learning to invest will always say, you should pay your tuition and learning about something, but don't put everything in all at once. And so this is a problem that affects me. It affects a lot of people in my situation of wanting to find more options for diversification, more ways to 
to weather the variances that can happen in the market and uh, feel much more empowered with our kind of financial future. So that's really, I think, the root of the problem that we're trying to solve. Understood. So bringing more people or giving them access or exposure as much as they want to take on when it comes to private assets, for example. Okay. And so I saw on your website that you said that you focus on private credit, staking and tokenization. So can you explain a little bit using those product categories, how BlueJay really works? And maybe, frankly, I would want to start with staking because that's probably the most unusual, I would say. Yeah, yeah. On our platform, the main product that most people should be aware of is really the private credit side of things. We basically work with fintech partners based in Singapore. They do have a scope across the region in general. And then we bring their funds onto the blockchain essentially and make it possible for you to earn a yield, basically participating as if you were an LP into a semi-liquid fund of theirs. The part about staking, the part around tokenization is all in support or it's all the technical productized elements around investing into private credit. But at the end of the day, it is still just the same as any other decision you'd make around deciding whether or not you'd engage in a financial service. So really the core product is the private credit piece. Everything else is just a means to an end for people to actually get exposure to it. Yeah. So our, so private credit is a very broad asset class. So There's corporate bonds, which could be for large cap companies. If they're raising from non-bank lenders, let's say Coca-Cola, right? That's still considered private credit, but that also goes all the way down to a SME or a small business also lending at a much higher rate and turning to alternative lending platforms in order to get capital and avoid perhaps like the more informal economy that is much more exorbitant, I would say, in their fees than some of these platforms. And so you're going to get a wide gamut of different types of companies in terms of size borrowing. And of course, the risk profile and then the return profile will differ depending on where you want to land there. The other differing element around private credit is also the tenure or the, yeah, essentially how long the term of the loan actually is. Private credit is sometimes referred to as also a type of fixed income because everything has a fixed term. So it's one year, two year, six months, and the returns are consistent. It's not like equity where you're not sure when the exit is and you're not sure exactly how it's priced. But the term is actually, is still quite important because there's different liquidity preferences among users as well. Most of the opportunities that we've had so far are considered short-term financing, and they belong in a category called working capital financing, or sometimes referred to as trade financing. But essentially, there might be a difference between, let's say, a firm that starts like working on something based off of invoices from a customer, but then the payment hasn't really happened yet. That's a working capital cycle that they have to manage through. And so they may borrow some capital to be able to meet some of the the cash needs in the short term. And so those tend to be much shorter. But you also have the longer tenure type of private credit, which could also include more, let's say, infra infrastructure like products, right? This a project. So this could include building out a new plant, right? Where you actually, the construction process is going to take a much longer time than perhaps the working capital window for another company. And then, of course, the last part I'll touch upon is really just companies themselves, right? The type of verticals that they would be in. I would say 
looking at private credit for an early, like an earlier stage e-commerce startup is going to present a slightly different, I would say, profile than lending out to the vendors of a cement conglomerate group, right? Where in the cement conglomerate group, a lot of their vendors are traditional companies. They have very steady cash flows, even if they're small, but they've probably been around for a long time. You're going to get more steady returns that are much lower. And if you wanted to look at more high-tech industries that are a little bit more new and growing, then you're going to look at slightly higher on the risk reward curve as well. And of course, you have to be aware of the industry dynamics amongst all of them. So I can talk about the different flavors of private credit probably for another four hours, but that's at least like an introduction of, dif- of different ways to think about it. But it's really such a diverse asset class. There's so many different ways, so many different nuances to, to nuances nuances to it as well. And so as an investor, you really do want to do your due diligence and understand what like is missing in your portfolio today, what might actually match that need within the suite of private credit products available. And then, of course, understanding the dynamics of the particular deal to see whether or not that risk is something that you are comfortable with. All right. So this is a perfect segue to my next question, even though we touched on it a little bit and I don't want to sound like a party, you know what, a spoiler, but private assets are obviously much larger as a class than a public ones. And it's difficult for retail investors to invest in them. And we talked about it, operational reasons or regulatory reasons, etc. But how do you feel about risk and suitability? Why should they? I know you, you wanted to, you're comfortable, you're knowledgeable. That's great. But when you come to an advisor, typically they would ask you where you are in life, what are your final financial obligations? And they come up with an allocation to equities or bonds accordingly they probably will say no more than 5 or 10% in alternative assets, right? Uh, and then coming back to your point that you should learn when you do this because it's risky. So you shouldn't just invest in one startup and then expect that this will pan out, right? You need to invest in many of them. The failure rate is very high. You need to diversify. Why should retail investors take on an exposure to, let's say, private assets and maybe the way you're turning them into something different because they're maybe not as illiquid as they used to be. So that could be one part of the answer, but why should they? Yeah, yeah. So to be clear, actually, most of the opportunities that we have on our platform are what we call diversified funds. So actually, when investors are participating in our opportunities, they're actually investing into a fund manager that has like a professional fund manager that has a portfolio of these different debt products among different companies. And they can have as many as 50 to 100 active loans going on. And so the investors are not actually individually going out and picking these companies, right? They're not like, okay, let me do do, do due diligence on the Indonesian fishery tech industry, or let me look at the Philippines ESG market, right? They're not actually doing that. Instead, they are looking at a professional fund manager at these fintechs or credit funds, look at their traction history, how, how what's their default rate, how has been the performance before, and then invest that way. So they're not singularly exposed to 
one company's variance in performance. And so I think this is a very similar logic to why people even invest in index funds and ETFs, right? It's a diversified way to get access to, let's say, all of S&P 500 or sometimes getting access to, let's say, cloud or tech or something that you may want specific industry exposure to. And that's how we, that's the kind of opportunities that we bring that make it a bit more appropriate for a retail investor who has a day job and probably something else and is not a professional investor to be able to get exposure to something without having to know all the ins and outs the same way that they do with their index funds for equity. I see. All right. I understood. So how do you enable all of this? What's your technology angle? Yeah. So there's a few things that we allow different folks to do. So number one, we have a KYC platform that does accredited investor checks. As much as we really want to bring more and more people into the financial system and be able to invest in this, to your point earlier, I think there are still some regulations as well as some considerations around the knowledge and financial literacy of of, of users. So we do actually have to gate the platform to just accredited investors for the time being for most of the opportunities. So that's on the investor side. On the fund side, basically what happens is our platform enables a listing of a deal, enables accepting of the payments, as well as the disbursements automatically back to the users themselves. And all the payments are done on Ethereum, on the blockchain. Essentially, you would get as an investor USDC or other stable coins that are pegged to local currencies in Asia, you use your wallet, deposit the stable coins into the opportunity you're interested in. There's a drawdown that would happen from there where the funds then get dispersed to the asset originator. And then as the repayments happen, then the money flow is going the opposite direction. So the tech part as of now really wants, so our objective is to make it as easy as possible for both sides of this ecosystem to be able to participate and be able to invest in places that they want to invest and be able to raise capital from new places in order to achieve the firm's goals with the money. I see. All right. So just to clarify, you're a B2C partner, but you're working with certain financial services providers as well, right? Yeah, you can say that. So we have a two-sided market. We are B2C, but B2C as in accredited investor C, not like mass retail investor C. And then on the other side, the supply side, that's the B2B component where we work with funds, essentially. Okay, understood, understood. Let's get real as well. How do you make money? What's your business model? Yeah, so our business model is twofold, right? And it's, to be honest, very similar to how things have worked for decades in the financial industry, right? We take a fee. So there is a performance fee that we take from investors when the investment is finishes a successful cycle. It's fully repaid at the end, principal plus all interest. So we take that. We also will charge on the asset originator side. If you think about it, we're providing two value add services for them. Number one, we are 
essentially a software that replaces and, and or improves back office for managing, accepting like small check sizes for many investors. So you don't have to hire as many people to manage that, right? So we do solve for some back office needs. The other part that we value add is actually on distribution. It's similar to the way that these asset originators will work with placement agents or broker brokers, right? There's a fee that is paid out dependent on the AUM actually raised. So that's how we think about monetization. So at the end of the day, we will grow in revenue when we grow our total assets under management. Okay. All right. And let's look at it also more broadly. Obviously, you're a female founder. You started in Singapore. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you had to overcome or maybe on a positive side, some of the advantages that you see being one of the few female founders as it typically is in fintech, unfortunately? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Maybe I'll talk about the positives, right? I like to start out with this one. I do think that there are some superpowers that are like given to female founders and that they get to understand 50% of the world in a way that perhaps other product builders maybe didn't. And I'll give an example of like women in finance, right? Most fintech products are like heavily male dominated. And if you look at the people sitting on the board, people building the products are also very male, right? The way women think about money can be very different and not to use stereotypes. This is a lot of the research that I've seen. It's that it's not that a lot of women are not financially literate or have the knowledge, but many of them are ha- have been training their minds to be a lot more risk averse and the level of confidence needed to, to I guess, for them to overcome or get is much, much higher, right? Than what you may see among male investors, for instance. The way that some women think about investment decisions is also much more socially or group oriented. I actually remember back when I was working on Google Pay in India, we were trying to figure out how to grow the percentage of women users beyond the 17% that we're seeing. And we are actually talking about how women in India actually do group investment schemes, sorry, group saving schemes a lot. They're called chit funds. And so that's something that is very prevalent across a lot of markets about women. So there's a lot of this social behavior around women in finance. So there's so much more that I can mention here, but I do think that as a female founder, I definitely understand the male perspective because I'm around men all the time, but I feel like there's an extra step of really understanding the female perspective. And right now, the reality is that even in alternatives, like it's very male dominated. So I'm hoping that I, and along with other females that are passionate about solving within this space, can find a way to to bring more females in and grow our user base, right, in a way that might be easier for us to think through. So that's maybe the positive, right? I'll talk about maybe the challenges, perhaps. There's not... Uh, I think the challenge is may- maybe more so in the beginning. I I won't lie. I think when I decided to take the plunge to leave Google and do my own startup, there was a lot self-doubt. I would say, hey, is this something that I'm qualified to do? I've never worked at another startup before I've been at Google. So I had all these like questions of, oh, I haven't had maybe 80% of the experience that I think a founder should have before they take the plunge. And then actually my my like mentors and friends encouraged me to just start talking to founders, people who decided to take the plunge, male or female. And what I realized through that process was actually a lot of people were just as qualified, or maybe I was even more qualified right before they started their own companies. And that gave me the confidence to actually take the plunge. So 
I think one of the things that tends to go through our heads maybe a bit, and perhaps it was going through my head as well, is I, I didn't see many founders that are like me. I also felt like I had hot, like these this criteria for what I had to be fully ready to do what I do. And that was a barrier, mental barrier. But I think as, when I overcame that and just started getting into it, I, I feel like it affected me a lot less. I would say on a day-to-day basis, I don't really think of my, I don't think about the female component that often. It's something I am aware of in terms of how it could affect other people. But I think for me, it was mostly just a challenge in the beginning. But over time, I just learned to embrace it and be okay with being maybe different than what gender wise from the rest of the fintech founders. But hey, half the people in the world are women and everybody wants to figure out what to do with money. So if that helps me solve the other part of the population better when it comes to money needs, like that's, I think, a a benefit at the end of the day. Absolutely. Great stuff. So before I let you go, I just have two easy questions. First of all, what nonfiction book would you take with you on a vacation? Gosh, you know what? I'll actually talk about a nonfiction book I'm currently reading that I was reading when I was taking a trip recently. And it's this book called Give and Take. I don't know if you've heard of it, Rudy, before. No, but go for it. Yeah. Yeah, the book actually, I got this book recommended to me because I was actually talking to a mentor of mine. And I said one of the things that I thought I needed to work on was to be a bit more protective of my time because I tend to like to just help people (laughs) all the time, even if it's not related to anything that benefits me in the short term, right? I just, especially other founders, right? I just genuinely want to help. And so I was saying it as if it's a problem. And then he recommended this book. So the book Give and Take actually talks about how most people in the world, if you were to define where they fall on the spectrum, are givers, matchers, or takers. So giver means you tend to give more than what you try to extract in value. You don't really care about getting stuff in return. Pure taker and the more extreme is the opposite. You're always trying to find ways to get more value than what you give. And then matchers in between are people who are like tit for tat, right? You're like, okay, let me just reciprocate and see how I can balance it out. And uh, the research was really interesting to say that actually in different industries and different professions, the least successful people were givers, but also the most successful people were also givers, right? So there's this polarization where they're saying how, yeah, if you're a giver and you're like a doormat or a complete pushover, right? And you never set boundaries for yourself. It's hard for you to be successful. But when you're somebody on the, I guess, the other side where you're you're giving to people, but in a way that, you know, you're kind of value adding to them, like over time, those kind of relationships can help you over the long term. So in the short term, maybe get, taking is better or matching is better. But the book was making an argument that givers actually can succeed even more over the long period in time because they're caring about relationship building and adding value to other people. So the example they actually gave was Abraham Lincoln in the beginning of how he like was really actually quite unsuccessful in his political career very early on. But he was still like helping even his like rivals as well as people he lost to in certain elections achieve their goals. And eventually we all know how history ends, right? He ends up being the most influential and significant president in the history of the US. So that was a nonfiction book that I started reading. And it was actually quite nice because I, I think I always felt like 
the element of being generous with time was a flaw or something you have to protect, especially as a busy founder. But the book actually talked about how it actually could be beneficial over the long term. Or another take on this is that if you want to withdraw something from Bank of Favors, you first need to deposit something. Yes, that's true, right? So exactly. And even if you're not thinking about that consciously, right, that is essentially the lesson there. Yes, and ideally you don't think about it consciously because then <laughs> yeah. it, it feels very transactional. All right. So last question is, what's the best way to find out more about Blue Jay and how? what's the best way to get in touch with you, whether you are a potential client or business partner or an employee or investor? Yeah, so our website is probably the best, bluejay.finance. And if you want to get in touch with me, there's actually two channels you can do. LinkedIn, my name is Sherry Jang. You can search me up. I think I'm the first Sherry Jing that pops up for most people. So yeah, feel free to reach out to me there. And then I'm also quite active on Twitter as well because I am still involved in the crypto community. I do read my DMs there as well. So whichever platform you prefer, you can reach out. I'm always happy to chat. Great stuff. Thank you so much, Sherry. And good luck to you and Blue Jay. For sure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.